At this time, I'd like to invite uh, up Denny Barger, who is our longtime friend and brother. We're grateful to have you preach for us this morning. So, Brother Denny, please come forward. Thank you, Tim. Good morning. Always good to be back here in Lydie's church. I, uh, so when I were talking on the way up, I said, well, this is not the land of my birth, but it's a land of my rebirth. And that's a much better birth, isn't it? Yeah. I hope you're all loving the fact that you are in Christ Jesus and that hopefully he's in you, right? It's the uh, first anniversary of my heart attack. And uh, I thought about celebrating it with some chocolate cake, but instead uh, I, I ended up digging a ditch with two of my sons. So uh, I think the, the, the operation must be working, right? You know, And that's a good thing. Uh, and it's good to have a bonus here. You know, the, the, the Bible and the Lord doesn't promise you much beyond 70. So uh, that's a good thing to have a bonus here. And, you know, for those that we've just prayed for that are sick or that are going through trials and pains, keep looking up. You know, the Savior loves us. He really does. And uh, it's just wonderful to be a Christian. I want to put in a shameless plug for our ministry this morning because as a church, you've been uh, supporting the work. Uh, we don't take a salary for that, but we get it all over to where it's most needed. And uh, so I got a little plug for that. I want to let you know what's been going on. If you aren't aware of our ministry, it's called Dreams Alive, um, the Arab American Alliance, and you can find uh, most of what we talk about. We do it on Facebook. Uh, we're pretty lax with our newsletters, but uh, primarily we do two things. We, we support the persecuted church uh, throughout the Middle East. We have opportunity to go in and comfort those in Iraq and Jordan and uh, that part of the world, uh, obviously Bahrain, where we lived for just about seven years. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of persecution still continues. And then last year, the ministry extended itself up to Ukraine because when we saw the Russians invade Ukraine, it reminded us so much of when ISIS came down into Iraq, and we just had to go and help. And so that's been going on as well. Uh, we have a nice school called the Good Shepherd School. As Tim said, it's time for new beginnings. If you're a school teacher and you like to go uh, work overseas and not get paid, come see me. They <laughs> don't call it a faith walk for anything. You know, there's reasons for that. But uh, we have a, a school, a clinic there and that sort of thing. And uh, also we have a school up in Iraq. And we're very excited that... Uh, about a year or two ago, we decided to have a scholarship for any of the kids that would want to go to medical school because where these six little villages where we help out, uh, they have to drive over an hour to get to a doctor. And so we thought, wouldn't it be great if some, one of these kids you know, got a call to be a medical person or a doctor? And sure enough, a young gal named Diana, who was top, tops in her high school class, went on to college, and we're very excited to say that she got straight A's all the way through her first year. That's a, that's a good thing, right? Somebody say amen or I'm going home. Okay. I mean, that's a good investment. Finding a young kid and that the Lord would put a ministry on their heart, and many of our jobs, you know, really are ministries. So uh, excited about that. 
We also began supporting a, a young American couple in United Arab Emirates this last year. She's a school teacher and he uh, trains people on reaching out to their neighbors who happen to be Muslims. So that's a cool thing. And then um, more, more recent than anything, we started uh, supporting a couple in Germany. Now this fella, his name is Hussam. Can you remember that? Hussam. Pray for him. Uh, he is from Syria. I met him in Jordan when he was a refugee. He managed to come over here to the United States and his wife was over here in the United States. The amazing thing about Hussam is while he was still in Syria, he became a Christian. And he had to leave Syria because of that. Uh, you know, in Islam, it's all, well, your family's almost duty-bound to either get you back to Islam or get you close to God by killing you. You know, it, it's, it's an all-or-nothing kind of proposition. Uh, but he gave his heart to the Lord, came over here, found his wife, uh, was excited, wanted to keep the marriage going, and she said, not with this. She said, you're going to have to make a choice between me or Jesus. Well, he really wanted to make the marriage work, but he wasn't going to let go of Jesus for, for her. So, unfortunately, she did divorce him. Well, fast forward three years, God really blessed this fella. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke. I want to share a verse with you that came to mind on the drive up here. When Hosam, you know, continued in the Lord, there he is in Texas, he's doing his best to adjust to America, and as he goes to church, sure enough, wouldn't you know, the Lord uh, introduced him to a young lady that loved the Lord and to fall in love with him. So they got married, and what to do? Let's go to Germany because we still have the freedom to evangelize Muslims there, and they won't kill us for doing it, so let's get off and do that. Well, uh, just this week, he wrote to me, and he said, hey, pray for us. Next week, we're going to have twins. So I'm thinking, I'm telling Sue this on the way up, and in Luke chapter 18, Peter says this, and it reminded me of Hassan. Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Friends, you can trust the Lord. He's going to bless you. And if he calls you to, you know, go off or whatever, you know, uh, and, and it cost you? You know, some of people are losing their jobs around the world, even here in America, because they're standing up for the things they believe in. Uh, if that's your situation, look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. He's coming. He's coming. So I just wanted to share that with you. It's been a good year in ministry. And um, yeah, life goes on. Sue and I are still down in New Jersey. Uh, we have a little Bible college going on down there. That's been a challenge. And uh, boy, you know, the Lord said, go to New Jersey. It's like, wow, that's, that's weird, you know. Uh, who would want to do that? Let's open our Bibles at John chapter 1. Before we get into it, I'd like to say an old Scottish prayer that I love so much. Father, that which we know not, teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.
Well, I want to begin the message here of examining this text with a story, a baseball story. Any baseball fans out there? As I see one, a couple of hands, okay. Well, way back in 1954, uh, there was a, a man, the opening season, a rookie named Jim Greengrass. And he gave a stellar performance that first day. He was hitting three out of four times at bat. Everybody thought, man, this Jim Greengrass, he's something else. Another rookie began that season, and uh, he didn't do so well. He struck out four times at bat in his very first game. Up four times, struck out four times. His name was Hank Aaron. But you know, the funny thing about Hank Aaron, he improved as he continued to play the game. And before you know it, they gave him a nickname, the Hammer. He hit uh, more home runs than anybody in his 23 years in baseball, he was nominated the most valuable player 19 times. But on that first day, man, the sports writers had him for lunch, you know. They just thought there was no potential whatsoever. When I look at Peter in our text today, I think of a man like Hank Aaron. I mean, stop and think about it. What did, what did the Lord see in Peter anyway, you know? Um, what did he see in him? His name was Simon. We, we read that a little while ago. Why did Jesus nickname him Cephas, which in Aramaic, you know, or Peter in Greek, they both mean the rock. What did the Lord mean by that? Was it because Peter was dependable, you know, a rock of dependence? Or, or, or was it because he was hard-headed and ignorant, like, boy, you're dumb as a rock? Anybody ever say that to you? Guilty as charged. But as the Gospels unfold and you start to study the life of Peter, even though he had all these character defects, like, you know, you see him, he's outspoken, he's impulsive, he's, he's fearful, he's, he's even cowardly, and yet the Lord sees something in him. And this is the thing. When we come to Christ, he sees us just the way we are. And yet he still loves us. And that's the beginning of a process. We call it, theologically, we call it sanctification. You know, and that's when, you know, salvation comes instantly. Bam! You, get, you know, Lord, come into my heart. Bam! He's right there. He's, and, and he fills you with this wonderful peace. And, and the world just changes in front of you. You know, I remember the day I got saved. I really do. I was in college, and I remember driving toward the school. And as I got closer, I thought, did somebody power wash the school? It just, everything looked new. It, you know, Paul talks about scales falling off his eyes. And, and you see the world in a new and a different way. And I know this church. I know the, the teaching that has gone on here about all those crazy, nasty things in the world. And you have a certain worldview yourselves because you know God's word. And you know the end of the story. Amen. God is with us. He walks us through things and, and he changes us and, and as we change, we change for the better, not for the worse. We actually improve. So yes, salvation is instant, but then this sanctification comes along. And if you've got friends or relatives or a spouse that's a Christian, when they mess up, please don't say, hmm, how's that Christianity thing going for you? Anybody ever say that to you? We have our moments. But it's a process of change that God wants to work with us and work himself in us and through us and give us all the wonderful fruit of the Spirit as well as the gifts of the Spirit.
to help us get the job done. So here we see this rookie disciple, Peter, full of flaws, and yet gradually he goes on to be probably, I think we could say he's the MVP of the disciples, right? He ends up being the most valued player, uh, but only after he met the master. So I want to talk to you today about that very thing, meeting the master. Now, I know Jesus is our friend, but he is also our master. And he often says, you know, what the world would think of and do uh, with the master, they would do to the disciples. So if you have been given a hard time at work or amongst your friends because you love the Lord, that's okay. That's okay. That's a sign that you're living the, the life that Christ gave you to live. Well, in this talk here, the first thing I want to say is that meeting the master often involves other people. It often involves other people. We saw one example there where, um, you know, the Lord saw, who was it, Philip in verse 43. It said, you know, the Lord saw Philip and he just said, follow me. That happens once in a while. In the Middle East, we often run into people where the Lord came to them. The church wasn't reaching out. And so the Lord goes to them in visions and dreams. And I'm telling you, this is real and it happens. But for most of us around the world, us meeting the master involves other people. Notice the sequence of events there in verse 35. Starts out with John the Baptist. He's got two of his own disciples, people that are committed to being with him. We're going to find out later that that is Andrew and John, and they're standing there with him. And what does he put out? Okay, back there. Okay, you want me to take this off? Okay. Um, anyway, he points out to them Jesus, and he, and he says to them, Behold the Lamb of God. Right away, these two, uh, they walk away from him, or from John, and they start following Jesus. Then we find Andrew, finds his brother Simon, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus finds Philip, Philip turns around, and he goes and tells Nathaniel. By the way, it's an interesting thing in that passage. You know, in verse 46, Nathaniel asks that question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, if you get close to me, you'll see I have a tattoo on my wrist. This is a noon. It's a letter N. It stands for Nazareth, or Nasara, really. And it's an Arabic word, a derogatory word about Jesus. When ISIS came into Iraq and they found Christian homes, they would paint this on the wall of the house and they'd tell the other soldiers, anything in that house is yours. Either they repent or take what you want, including girls as young as 10 years old to be their wives. Uh, it was a nasty business. And once I got up there and saw all that, I never wanted to forget what my new friends have gone through because they love the Lord. I don't want to forget that. But that's, uh, they use that word, Nasara, meaning the Nazareth about Jesus. And they're basically saying this verse. Hey, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, oh, that Jesus, he's just a Nazarene. He's not God. But you know in your heart, he is God. And he loves us and walks with us and leads us. So here's this meeting the master. It involves other people. And, and, you know, I, I would challenge you, you know, and invite you to be like Andrew, to be like Philip, and, and reach out to other people. It's not so difficult to, to talk to people about your best friend. 
Your best friend is Jesus, hopefully, you know. Uh, but there are three things you either need to be or do. And one is that we need to care about people. That's rather obvious, isn't it? You know, uh, again, on the way up here, we had a nice long drive, and we started talking about the things of the world and the things that are going on that really upset us. And we kind of looked at each other and thought, there's two things we can do here. We can't possibly change at all. We wish we had a little magic wand, you know, uh, to get it back to the 1950s, but we can't do that. So what can we do? Well, number one, we can pray. And number two, we can say, hey, Lord, can I help? Is there something you want me to do to make a difference? And maybe it's only a difference for one other person, but it's a difference. We got to start by caring for people. When all that nonsense was going on and ISIS was rolling into Iraq, I was watching it all on my computer, you know, and I was really getting distressed and crying. And, and I, so I prayed and I said, Lord, somebody ought to do something. You know what the still small voice came back and said? Well, you're a somebody, aren't you? Better be careful what you pray, right? Next thing I knew, I was in Iraq. So we need to care about people. It's very obvious. We also need to point them beyond ourselves and our experience. You know, talking to people about being a Christian doesn't mean they need to be like us. Just think about this. If, if I were sharing the gospel with you and I said, hey, you know, come to Jesus. Be a Christian. You can be just like me. God will give you six kids. He'll give you so many grandkids. You'll have to have a line item in your budget for birthdays, you know. And guess what? He might even send you into the Middle East where all these crazy people shoot each other and burn down churches. What do you say? You want to join up? Nah, I don't think everybody would be hopping on that one. God calls us individually, specifically. He gives us works that he created before time, you know, those good works we can do. And they're different for everybody else. So basically when we talk to people about being a Christian, the emphasis isn't on, hey, look what he's done for me as much as it is, you know what? He forgives sins. I don't know anybody in the world that doesn't sin. We all need forgiveness. You know, Jesus forgives sins. Jesus offers truth. Aren't you confused about what is fake news and real news? <laughs> I am. No, Jesus gives us truth. And Jesus gives us new life, and he gives us grace and peace. He gives us himself. A third thing, you know, in addition to caring about people and, and pointing them toward Jesus, not to us, is that uh, we need to know the gospel. There in John chapter 1, if we go back to verse 29... We see John the Baptist um, on the first day that he saw Jesus. Or the second, excuse me, in verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Isn't that a beautiful passage you know, um, John, 
doesn't know everything. He hasn't been to theology school. He hasn't had the benefit of sitting at the feet of Jesus for three years like Peter and the others did. But he knew enough about Jesus to say, hey, he's the one. You don't need to know much. You know, do you realize if, if you know John 3.16 by heart, you know more Bible than three-fifths of the people on this planet? So you have something to share right there. Let's go on. Secondly, meeting the master is quite personal, very personal. Um, again, in verse 37 through 39, we read that the two disciples, uh, Andrew and John, the two disciples heard him, Jesus, speaking, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, which translated means teacher, seek. And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. You know, John the Baptist was the one that pointed those two to Jesus. But both of those men had to make a personal decision to follow Jesus. They weren't coerced, you know. Um, you know, they, they weren't forced to follow Jesus. Uh, I learned in this church many, many years ago, God is a gentleman. He's not going to force you into becoming a believer. I also learned here that God has no grandchildren, you know, that we all have to be born again. We don't get into heaven based on our parents' faith, but we get into heaven because we have found faith in Christ. He's come and he's touched our hearts. This choice to follow Jesus, to be a sincere question, or excuse me, Christian, is actually based on two questions. In fact, in our reading here, John, these are the first words he has Jesus speak in his gospel there in verse 37. Jesus asks a simple question, what do you seek? That's a good question, isn't it? What do you seek? What do you seek? When you came to the Lord, what were you looking for? I know for myself, my world was crazy. I needed peace. And I think most people do. And it's interesting, if you read Paul's letters, when he opens the letters, practically every one, he starts out with uh, blessings for the people of grace and peace. Notice, it's always grace first. And everybody out there wants peace of mind. They're going crazy in the world, really, today. I, I've never seen it so crazy, and I'm getting old. I've seen a lot. But the first thing, in order, if you want to have peace of mind, the first thing you need is the grace of God. Paul knows that, you know. And, and so Jesus asked this question, what do you seek? I remember I was back in seminary, and I went to some seminary where actually some of the professors, I would not today call them Christians whatsoever. In fact, we had a New Testament professor at that school, and this is the reason I left that school. He was actually up there talking, and he was saying things that, wow, this sounds really uncomfortable. So me and a couple of fellows went and talked to him, and we said, Professor, it sounds like you're saying that Jesus isn't God. He said, that's precisely what I'm saying. I said, oh, okay. So uh, why are we spending thousands of dollars to get an education in this school? What's the point of us becoming pastors? He said, well, you boys can go out there and, and as a pastor, you will influence people and you can influence people to change the world so that there's no more, no threat of nuclear war and you can work on cleaning up the environment. And that's the deal. I said, I am 
Man, I just shook my head in that moment. I said, I am, man, I'm going to get through this semester because I need the credits, you know what I mean? But I'm out of here. Adios, amigo. That's what's in a lot of seminaries today. You know, it's, it's no, uh, it's kind of plain to see why a lot of people joke and say seminary is like the cemetery. Young people that believe in the Lord and get excited about them go to get an education and they get some of this nonsense. Now, they're not all like that. But I was shocked that they, what do you seek? Well, I seek a way to help clean up the environment and stop nuclear war, you know? No, no, man, I'm, what are you talking about? We're, we're talking about new life and eternity and, and, and living the Christian adventure. It's exciting to be a Christian. I love it. Armin Weller once warned us about galvation. Y'all ever hear about galvation? That's when a young man goes to a church and looks for a pretty girl to marry. You're not laughing. I'll take that one out of my notes for the next time. You come for salvation, not galvation. You know, you know why? You know, I actually had a guy leave our church one time. We had a small church down in South Jersey years ago, and he said he was leaving. And I said, why? You know, have I been teaching wrong things? Oh, no, it has nothing to do with that. But my daughter's getting of the age to marry, and there's not enough people here. Oh, okay. I, I couldn't argue with that. And, and she certainly was, you know, but I better move on. What do you seek in Jesus? Are, are you looking for political things, influence? Or are you really looking for salvation? Or are you looking for what my father-in-law used to call the good fairy? God's not a good fairy waiting around to give you, you know, all your wants. He will provide your needs. I can attest to that. But it's not about you. It's about him. So he asked that question, what are you seeking? In verse 43, he tells Peter, follow me. Well, that raises another question. To what degree are you willing to follow him? And here's where we use, they told us in seminary, in the better seminary that I got up, never use the C word in the pulpit. You'll lose people. So we're like, what's that? Commitment. Never ask the church for commitment. Just don't ever say it. They'll leave. I hope that's not what's going on here at Lighty's Church. I know it's not because I see some of you that were around 47 years ago when I got saved. So you got, you got some of that C on you, you know, and in you. That's a good thing. But it is a good question when he says, follow me. To what degree are you willing to follow him and obey him? Ooh, we have to obey him. You know, I'm convinced that the reason most people deny Christ is because of that. They don't want to obey him. It's nice having a little savior up there. It's nice having a good fairy. But, oh, please don't tell me I have to obey you. After all, I'm the God of my own universe. I like things my way. I've probably said it here before, but you know the one Frank Sinatra song, and I'm from Jersey, you know, Frank was from Jersey, I like Frank Sinatra songs, but boy, when he sang, I did it my way, no, man, my way wasn't getting me anywhere fast, that's for sure. You don't want to do it my way, you want to do it Yahweh. So here's John and, and, and Andrew, and he's Peter and all, and he's asking that question. Follow me, he says to them. 
Essentially, it's not going. It, let me start. Essentially, it is going to call you to. And if you, you have no idea where God's going to call you to. And if you obey him, that's okay. Because you know he's with you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If the Lord calls you to go somewhere really scary, you know, where they have guns and crazy people, like New Jersey, <laughs> just go. Just do it, but make sure it's him. So he was testing them is what he was doing here to see if they would f listen and follow him. And, uh, you know, Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. He said this about us Christians. He said, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Believe in him. Obey him. Enjoy this wonderful walk with Christ. Well, as Peter followed Jesus that day, his day turned into weeks, and, and then Jesus raised the bar, and he said this to Peter and the other disciples in Luke 9, 23. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. See, follow me has uh, some uh, fine print with it, doesn't it? Pick up your cross. Cross is an instrument of execution. It's nothing you'd, you know, ascribe, oh boy, I can't wait, you know, I'll get a chance to hang on a cross. Nobody, you, you have to have a sick mind to do that, you know. I don't want to suffer for the Lord. I, I like to bless. He said, but he doesn't just focus on blessings. He said, pick up your cross, follow me. Follow me to deny ourselves even to the point of death in order to follow Jesus. I got thinking about that, you know, and when I first became a Christian, I really thought it was like a leisurely walk to the church and all these people are so nice and they like us and they have potluck suppers and boy, you eat good at a potluck supper, you know. I really like that. And that singing always makes me feel good. Yeah, I thought Christianity was a leisurely walk until I found out it was more like hopping on the back of a motorcycle with Evil Knievel driving, you know. It's like, oh, look at that canyon. Let's jump it, you know. That's what it's like to walk with the Lord and to obey him and walk by faith. It's certainly not boring, I'll tell you that. So here's Peter, and he's following the Lord. And it's a turning point. And that's my third major point here. Meeting the master is a turning point in life. You think this moment was important to John? You look down there. Um, oh, what verse was it? Okay, it's verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, you need to understand something. John's maybe 20 years old, maybe 18. He's young. He's the youngest disciple. So he's writing the gospel when? When he's like 70 or 80. A good 50 or 60 years have transpired, and he remembers that day so much, he can say, hey, it was 10 a.m. Oh, I remember it well. Do you remember the day that the Lord came into your heart? I do. I, I, I don't know the exact hour. I'm not as sharp as John. I'm, in fact, I'm losing a lot of it as I get older. But I know it was September 10th, 1976, and I was standing on my sister's porch 
I had been to Lighty's for months. I had been to the Bible studies. Now it was down to the crunch. You really want to do this? Then ask me into my heart, and you'll find out I called you before the beginning of time. <laughs> but you never know if he's called you until you say yes and let him in. It's an interesting balance there. So this is a turning point. John remembers it well. It's a, what you would call a watershed moment, a crucial turning point in, your, in which your life changes forever. Do you, do you guys have watershed moments? Are there things that happened in your life that you remember so clearly you can see it as if it's happening right now? I remember the, the day I met the girl or the first time I saw the girl that was going to be my wife. I was in the upstairs looking out the window and she was getting out of the car and I looked down and I thought, she's really pretty. I wonder what it'd be like to... That was my exact thought, okay? Yeah, it wasn't her thought. She saw me and thought, that dude needs a haircut. There's something wrong with him. You know? But it was a watershed moment, you know? And, and then we started this... I got the haircut, you know? And then, you know, we started seeing each other, and we were down in Ocean City, and uh, I was standing in the water. It was at Ninth Street Beach. And she kind of waded over and looked me in the eye and said, you know what, I really love you. First time she ever said it. I was scared. I thought, should I swim toward England? <laughs> this was a watershed moment. I didn't even know what a watershed moment meant, but I knew something was changing. And then on July 6, 1978, our first child was born. Wow, talk about watershed. That was so exciting. There she was. I remember just me and Sue and the little Kate. And gosh, I could see it. But you know, the most important watershed moment was that night on my sister's porch where I was staying. And I asked him into my heart. And I got to tell you, there were no fireworks. There was nothing crazy going on. I didn't see any visions. I didn't hear any voices. You're a changed man. But the next day when I got up, I thought, you're a changed man. You're a changed man. And from that moment on, it's been me and Jesus. By the way, I just happened to glance back at my notes. You know that watershed moment with having the first child? If you haven't had yours yet, I want to warn you something. Uh, I found out uh, quite rapidly that a child uh, uses... Uh, more than 8,000 diapers in the first two years. Just keep that in mind. I don't know how I skipped over that. That's a very important theological statement. So Peter's watershed moment was meeting Jesus, and it reveals two universal truths. One thing, when he met Jesus, we know that the master knows exactly who we are. He knew exactly who Peter was. He said, you are Simon, son of John, you're a rude, crude fisherman dude. And when it comes to spiritual things, you're a rookie. You strike out and you drop balls. Well, he didn't say all that, but he knew it. When we meet the master, he helps us make an honest assessment of ourselves. He makes sure we know that we need him. I know I needed him. In fact, I still need him every day. Every day I need him. He's so good. And he shows up. He's never just said, oh, i got other things to do. It's a big world. Get it, do it yourself. I've never heard that from the Lord. He's so good. Turn, turn with me to Luke chapter 5, just momentarily. You know, in this 
chapter in Luke, it's actually the second time he's seeing Jesus. So like he met Jesus, followed him for a little bit, and he had a job to do. We know Peter was married. Maybe he had kids. I don't know. It doesn't say anything about that. But, but this is a recording of the second time he meets him. And I'm going to read the thing, whole thing. It's verse 3. It says, he, Jesus, got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, our man Peter, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and he began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Big point right in that verse. You ought to study that for a while, meditate on that. Look, I don't know what you're telling me to do this for, God. You know, I, I've been there, done that. I, I, I'm a fisherman. You're not, Jesus. You know, I know what I'm talking about. But you're the master. I will obey. That comes up just about every day of our lives. So he says, I'll do what you say. I'll let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish. Okay? But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And I'll just leave it there. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You know, when we meet Jesus, there has to be that assessment. Salvation comes to those that know they need it. God loves us just the way we are. And we know, as Isaiah said, our righteousness is like filthy rags. How hard did you try to be good and behave yourself and impress people, let alone impress God, you know, before you got saved? It's so futile. But with Jesus, we've got everything. Now, the funny thing is that when we push Jesus away, he pushes in. He pushes back on us. It's sort of like he says, oh, really? Try me. You think you're lost? You think you're hopeless? Try me. Because nothing is hopeless with the Lord. You know, and he goes on with his work of improving us. But it begins with this, this confession. And we, we, you know, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Amen. He forgives us when we pray to him. He doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't bring it up next week. No, he forgives our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we know that when we meet the master, he knows precisely who we are. Then the master knows precisely who we can be. Back in John chapter 1 and verse 42, yeah, he knew who he was. Look at that verse. You know, we, we hear a proclamation and a promise. The proclamation is you are. You are Simon. But the promise is there. You shall be Cephas. You are this, but you shall be that, that which I, the Lord, can improve. You're Simon, son of John, rude, crude fisherman, dude. But I'm going to make you the most valuable player on the team. 
God is so good to us. As we wrap this up, just believe in your heart. God changes people. He changed me. I know some of you. He changed you. And you have friends and you think, man, God will never change that knocker. He's long gone. Don't you dare. They used to say the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The worse they are, nah. For Jesus, it's nothing to change people, just to touch their hearts. So don't be afraid to share the gospel with people that you think won't get saved. Because it's not about you and me. It's about the master. And the master says yes. And the master will say follow to some of the strangest people you ever met. He's so good. Jesus changes people if they're willing to let him rule in their heart. Change Peter's name to Cephas, the rock. The rock. To be a rock with Jesus. You know, we, it, we need to let him sculptor our whole life. You probably heard about the great sculptor who unveiled a statue of a king. And someone asked him, he said, well, how do you get a king out of a slab of rock? And the sculptor answered, that's pretty simple. I chip away everything that doesn't resemble a king, and I smooth and polish everything that does. Jesus is our sculptor. He's getting rid of all your chunky, funky stuff. And he's polishing off the goodness that he himself, only he himself, can pour into your heart. Love him. Love him. And, and don't just keep them for yourself. Think about the other people you know that they're, well, you know they need a little help. Love them, care for them. And whenever you have the opportunity, tell them about your best friend, Jesus, and what he's done for you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father God, you are so good to us. And, I, you know, Lord, I, I think a lot during the week about all the insanity that's going on out in the world. and I can get caught up in that. And I tend to forget how amazing and how wonderful you are when I'm in the midst of whining and complaining about the world. I'm probably not the only one in this room that does it. So for all of us, Lord, I'd ask you to forgive us for having those moments of fear, timidity, Help us have faith. Help us to trust you, to trust your word, to believe with all our heart that you are not only the author of our faith, but the finisher of our faith, and that you have created good works for us from the beginning of time, Lord. You knew this moment would be here. You, you put us in this place. One friend called it Crazyville. Yeah, well, that's where you put us, Lord. Then let us, let us shine with you. Let us not only use the gifts of your Holy Spirit, but exp exp you know, just show. <laughs> show the world the fruit of your Spirit. The love, the kindness, the patience. All those wonderful things that only you can put into a heart and change a person. We are grateful for you. We're grateful for this fellowship. Lord, I'm grateful for the committed ones. How over the years they've stood fast. You've done a lot of mighty works here, Lord, and I just can't help but amaze, be amazed by the, the wonderful things you're going to do in the near future. It's all about you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.